Hey everyone, and welcome to a podcast by Buffalo Occupational Therapy for student and OT practitioners looking to bridge the gap between what you were taught in school and real-world OT practice. We are all about using our full scope of practice and understand that OT is so much more than ADLs. We are a medical science, we are a social science, and we are the cutting-edge next generation of OT practitioners. Welcome to Rethink OT. This is a very broad and general conversation about cerebral vascular accidents. I wanted to take a moment just to provide a broad understanding of what an occupational therapy practitioner should know regarding uh, CVAs or strokes. We see these working with an adult uh, in adult practice settings of occupational therapy. And so I wanted to provide you some, some content that is going to help you better understand the pathology and the mechanism of injury as you build your plan of care and treatment continuums in practical application. For more information, I have given you guys helpful videos and audios that will give you a better understanding or a better depiction, so I would encourage you to watch and listen to those trainings. But as for general stroke information, a cerebral vascular accident is a disease where the blood flow to the brain is interrupted. There is a difference between a cerebral vascular accident, or a CVA, and a transient ischemic attack, or a TIA. A cerebral vascular accident is a large event, and a TIA is a small event or short period that can potentially be a precursor or a warning sign of a larger event. So if you hear that your client has never had a stroke, but they say, I have had two or three TIAs, you know that they are high risk to have a bigger Uh, event or a cerebral vascular accident. So do keep that in mind when approaching patient education. You do want to know the TIA are small events that are a precursor or a warning sign of a larger event and their doctor will want to uh, follow that closely. As far as prevalence, uh, the in 2016 strokes were the fifth leading cause of death in the United States, but it still remains the leading cause of disability in the United States. Remembering that disability is altered participation in activity and environment versus impairments where someone can have multiple impairments or uh, barriers within their body structures, functions, and skills and still not be disabled. So understanding that differentiation is an important occupational therapy mindset. So what are some of the risk factors with cerebral vascular accidents? You have modifiable risk factors and you have non-modifiable risk factors. The modifiable risk factors are what a person can change. They can control these items. So what are some of those elements that someone can control in terms of risk factors for a stroke? Hypertension or high blood pressure, smoking, 
coronary heart disease, hyperlipidemia or high cholesterol, obesity, diabetes, and drug abuse, all of those are modifiable risk factors for a CVA. So now what are non-modifiable risk factors? These are, these are factors that are beyond someone's control. This includes gender, race, and age. A woman's risk for having a stroke between 55 and 75 years old is 21% higher than males of the same age. The risk factors for first-time stroke is two times higher in African Americans than any other race, and the risk factor of having a stroke doubles every decade over the age of 55. This is really important in terms of understanding what kind of coverage someone needs for health insurance. I always educate my patients on their risk of having a stroke. I mean, so many people come in, nobody plans for this, right? They they are fine one one day and then they have a large event like this. And then they require three times a week therapy by occupational therapy, physical therapy, and speech therapy, not to mention other types of medical interventions. So we want to make sure that our clients are understanding what kind of coverage they want to prepare for as they're older. Listen, any type of neurological-based injury, most of them, most of these progressive neurological conditions are happening as somebody ages. And so we want to make sure that they understand that preparation is important. Uh, you can't, you really can't put a price on healthcare. So if you can afford a health insurance plan that is going to allow for therapy, then do look into that. We need to understand that insurance companies today, as of 2021 going into 2022, they do not value therapies and therefore their benefits are reflected as such. So that was a little a little rabbit trail. Back to uh, the information about a cerebral vascular accident, we've talked about the prevalence, we've talked about the risk factors, we've talked about the difference between a CVA and a TIA. So Let's move into knowing the warning signs. Every practitioner, really anybody, needs to know what the warning signs are of a stroke. And we usually, everybody usually knows this already, fast. F as in face, A as in arm, S or speech, T, time. So remember fast. Face, one side of the face droops. A, arm, one arm drifts downward. S, speech, slurred or odd speech, and T, time. Time is of the essence. You want to have early intervention to slow whatever mechanism of CVA is taking place. Though know that this can actually take place over years. Somebody can have their oxygen or blood supply being impacted or, or impeded over years with a stroke. I have a patient actually right now who has had a 99% clot in one of the major arteries of her brain. And it so that would be considered an ischemic CVA. She was having this over years. She was seeing the impact of it. It wasn't until her son noticed that her speech was being slurred that she actually went in and had this checked, and it turns out that she was having a stroke. And so we need to understand that this can be seen abruptly or acute, or it can be seen it can be seen over time uh, because of that 
the, you know, whatever is clogging those, those major blood vessels. So again, a stroke is when the brain is deprived of oxygen and blood supply. Neurons die from lack of oxygen and blood or pressure from fluid. We know the, the harmful impacts of compression of these vessels, right? So whether it's from lack of oxygen or compression or pressure from fluid, that is what is leading to ultimate neuron death. So like I said, there are two types of cerebral vascular accidents that can occur. You have ischemic or a clot, and you have hemorrhagic, which is like a burst. It's like bleeding out, right? Someone hemorrhaging. When you're talking about an ischemic cerebral vascular accident, you can have an embolic stroke or a thrombic stroke. An embolic stroke occurs when a clot breaks free and travels through a vessel before causing a blockage. This traveling clot, called an embolus, may originate from vascular plaques or deep vein thrombosis. Another type of an ischemic cerebrovascular accident is a thrombic stroke, and that occurs as a result of buildup inside of the blood vessel, usually through atherosclerotic disease. This buildup causes blocks in the artery or occludes the, the artery. Now we have a hemorrhagic stroke, so ischemic stroke, we have a hemorrhagic stroke. That's, that's the other side of things. This occurs when a blood vessel ruptures or leaks, most commonly because of hypertension bleeds, malformed blood vessels or veins, aneurysms, which are blood vessel weakness, or it may be spontaneous. It causes excess blood to come in contact with other brain tissues, which is an irritant, right? Can cause the skull to fill up with ruptured blood, squeezing brain tissues, and causing significant damage and pressure. By way of medical treatment, an endovascular procedure can be performed where they thread a tube through the groin up to the affected area of the brain and place a stent, or they do a surgery to stop the bleeding. Moving on to possible CVA symptoms based on location, know that we do have information, which there's a PDF for this in the portal, we do have information that will allow us to know what to expect based on the area of the brain that is being impacted by the cerebral vascular accident. So an internal, the internal carotid artery, the anterior cere cerebral space, middle cerebral space, posterior cerebral space, the basilar or cerebellar area, all of these have corresponding impacts uh, that are targeted to the functionality of that brain region. So please do take time to look at those differentiations. Same thing with body functions being impacted. We can, as occupational therapy practitioners, break down the impact of this pathology. And that's what activity analysis is all about. That is why we have a background in this information. That's why we learn gross anatomy. That's why we learn neuroanatomy. So that we can then use our medical knowledge through the lens of the occupational therapy practice framework, knowing all of the different body functions, right? We look at the deficits or barriers that are being presented for body functions, structures, and performance skills individually when we're, when we're performing activity analysis. So when we're breaking down all of the different functions of the body, we have a better understanding of what types of deficits or symptom manifestations can present. I want to take time here to 
just put a little disclaimer into this space because when we're breaking down functions of the body, mainly functions that overlap with other professions, so where speech where speech handles aphasia and swallowing and physical therapy works with musculoskeletal function, it it seems to be confusing for an occupational therapy practitioner where they fit. But just because they focus on it does not mean you can't specialize in it. That is their primary role, but that does not take away your right to grow your competence in this field and and lead the way. You do have it in your scope of practice. We do have the liberty to grow in competence and specialize in any one of these areas. You do not need to be shamed or put in the shadow by another profession. So you can focus on pediatric and adult swallowing. You can focus and specialize in aphasia and communication disorders. That is within your scope of practice. You are not just an assistant to another profession in that space. With that said, you want to make sure that you have developed your competence in that space and that you can lead the way, that you can more effectively treat that than another profession. If you can't, there's no reason and no shame in deferring to another profession to focus on an area that you're not strong in. I fully believe that. Uh, I have no problem deferring uh, to speech therapy for communication disorders because I don't want to develop my my competence in that space. I why would I want to do that when I work very closely with with people who have mastered that uh, area of practice. So if I if I feel as though someone else can better better serve my clients, then of course I'm going to bring in um, other professions, and of course the current research all points to multidisciplinary treatments. So you, because you're a generalist, can focus on so many more places than somebody else. Why not Why not use another person's profession to help the patient instead of trying to be all things to all people? We don't have to be confused about it. If you want to specialize in it, if you want to have passion in those areas, then do it and own it and lead it. But if you don't, then it's okay to to defer. But don't feel like that takes away something from your scope of practice. Don't feel like you can't do it. I think that's what it comes down to. There's there's a line, right? There's that line that needs to be drawn between deferring out of choice and deferring out of necessity. And then finally, we cannot forget the psychological factors or the psychosocial and behavioral factors that are implicated after a cerebral vascular accident, we have to take charge of that as an occupational therapy profession because we believe that that's an integral part of physical restorative function. So if you are in the field of of trying to improve occupational performance, we have to believe and fully advocate for the, the cor- incorporation of behavioral components as well to our treatment plans. So again, when you're building your plan of care and treatment continuums, your daily treatments, every single treatment that you that you create really needs to be addressing perception, behavior, and those psychological components of healing. 
Hey guys, I just want to interrupt real quick. I want to take a minute to remind you to head to our website for OT treatment ideas, any PDFs we reference in this podcast, and a ton of OT science rationale for your documentation. Be the therapist your clients ask for instead of just the therapist they feel they can do without. Head to the Bot Portal and OT store at www.buffalooccupationaltherapy.com. And don't forget to find us on social media in our Facebook group at Outpatient OT or on Insta at OT underscore Outpatient. Now back to the show. Let's switch gears and talk about the evaluation process. Even if you're a certified occupational therapy assistant, stay with me because this information is still pertinent to you even though you're not collecting the initial information. You are collecting subjective information every time you interact with your patient. Every interaction shapes the occupational therapy process. So as an occupational therapy assistant, You are shaping the process, so you too need to understand the evaluation and uh, assessment protocols. So when we're talking about the subjective section, this is the time where we're going to be building our plan of care, we're going to be building our occupational profile, we're going to be gathering information specifically on the patient. What is influencing the patient? up until this point so that we can understand what will continue to influence the patient living with impairments or going through their their restorative process. So about the diagnosis, when when you're approaching this diagnosis and evaluation, you want to consider some questions. When were they diagnosed? When did the CVA occur? Was it three weeks ago? Was it six months ago? Was it three years ago? All of this determines how you are going to interact with the diagnosis and form your plan of care. Who diagnosed them? Who is the provider? Especially an outpatient, you need to be able to develop a relationship with these providers and you have to be able to reach out to them should you need to update protocols or inform their doctors of new findings. What prompted them to seek out this diagnosis? Again, sometimes they have quite a story that led them to this place. Sometimes it's not an acute traumatic accident. Sometimes it's symptoms that they saw they had no idea and they eventually went in to be told that they've, they were suffering from a CVA or they've had multiple TIAs, which we've already discussed. What other conditions do they have? Always know their underlying conditions. Sometimes intake does not give you that information and you need to acquire this information for yourself. Do they have arthritis, lupus, fibromyalgia, connective tissue disorder, any other diagnosis, uh, cardiovascular disease, any other diagnosis that could impact your treatments? impact their ability to heal, so their restorative potential. We want to make sure we know that that is important, especially for an occupational therapy practitioner. What symptoms are most affecting them right now in their quality of life? We need to determine what is most meaningful to them. If ADLs are not the most meaningful thing to them, then ADLs are not the most important thing to them. Some people would rather focus on accomplishing roles that they have, like wife or 
teacher or being a mom, right? They're caring more about others and their ability to help others than they do about themselves. And yes, we want them to learn how to prioritize themselves, but it's our job to work on what's most meaningful to them. So keep that in mind. What are they most nervous about regarding their diagnosis? What is their prognosis? Are, do they know? Do they know about their diagnosis and prognosis? What do they know, again, about their diagnosis and what questions do they have? What symptoms would they like to address or how are their symptoms being addressed by their current medical team? What did their doctor say about their status and when is their next follow-up appointment? Have they received any type of injections for spasticity to date? When were those injections? When are their next ones scheduled? This will depend on the place setting. If it's more acute and you're still in the hospital, most likely they have not yet had any type of injections, they could still be in the flaccid stage. So keep that in mind as well. General information when building that occupational profile in the subjective section, you want to make sure that you're referencing social support, their living situation, any community activity they were participating in prior to their event, activities or occupations being impacted, life roles and how they are being impacted. You may want to uh, you may want to use the roles checklist as a way to formalize these roles uh, to see where they're coming from. It's always important to, to acquire the, the, the broadest picture of your client's occupational domains. Always make sure that you're addressing their environmental and participation to uh, task barriers. Remember, there's nine domains of occupation, so it's not just taking an interview about ADL participation. This person has other things related to the, their occupational health. It's not just ADLs. Health management and how their diagnosis on underlying conditions are impacting their occupations or medical um, medicinal management, so medication management. And then finally, uh, you do want to note if your patient is a good historian, if they are having difficulty pulling up facts, if you know something and they are not, if you know something as fact in their medical history and they are unable to give you that information or if they give you inaccurate information, make sure that you're notating that so that you can fact check with a caregiver or the medical team. Finally, when preparing for your objective section, make sure that you are reviewing the possible symptoms associated with the structural, the, you know, the isolated part of the attack. So is it ischemic or is it hemorrhagic? What are the common symptoms that you are going to need to watch for? Always make sure that you have a good understanding of the mechanism of injury before you walk in. Even if you are working in a setting, which is 90% true, right? Most settings, you're not going to know everything about the disorder and, and you're probably going to receive this information five minutes before you walk into their room. That is why you need to have your resources handy. That is why you should have a notebook, a, a fact check notebook, a quick access notebook, something to allow you to quickly look up the mechanism of injury and look up how you've treated it in the past or what have you. Always building your resources is so important. So before you go into the objective section and what assessments you're going to um, assessments you're going to use, 
make make sure that you're considering coping strategies. You're considering those psychodynamic elements as well. Psychosocial and perception-based deficits, including locus of control, altered participation in life activities, how capable they believe themselves to be, their body image if they've had if they have hemiplegia or are, you know, experiencing hemiparesis, make sure that you are including these types of assessments into your plan of care and you're asking these types of questions in your evaluation. Perception in occupational therapy cannot be compartmentalized. Their feelings, their psychological health, their mental health, behavioral health, all of this is inextricably tied to physical restorative potential. So make sure that you are addressing this and elevating it in your therapeutic process. The next section of the therapeutic process in occupational therapy is the objective section. So when you're approaching your initial evaluation or even your progress period uh, throughout the process as an occupational therapy assistant, you can be bringing up and discussing different assessments as well of what might be appropriate, right? It's all collaboration between the OTR and the OTA. So when we're talking about the objective section, there's many different assessments that we can use to establish goals. When I approach these situations, I want to break it down into body functions and structures. What are the what are the patient's most pertinent deficits or impairments and how can I get some kind of objective baseline to show them, myself and the doctor what kind of gains we're going to be making over the plan of care. So Let's, th let's talk about the neuromuscular and movement-related functions first. When we're working with neuromuscular and movement-related function, functional impairments, right, we're going to be thinking about the level of activity that neuromuscular control, so tone. Where are they in the process? Are they having flaccidity or are their upper, is their upper extremity flaccid? Is it spastic? Does it have volitional movement? Where is it in the stage of movement return or recovery? I'm going to use the modified Ashworth scale, or I'm going to use the Fugelmeyer to first and foremost stage where their function, their, their mobility function is at. You could also use river mean mobility assessment that's commonly used in the acquisition of outcomes, uh, outcome measurements for uh, someone with a stroke. So Fugelmeyer, Modified Ashworth, and Rivermead Mobility Assessment. You can also use the Lower Extremity Functional Scale. Uh, these are all, these are all really good for assessing the initial mobility because they help you, uh, they have, spe they have specificity to them. They can, they can show you little, little changes throughout your plan of care. Next, we want to talk about uh, sensory perceptual functions, some different disorders that might be associated with the sensory perceptual functions are hemianopsia or one-sided field cut, diplopia, which is double vision, and hemianesthesia, which is the loss of feeling in one side of the body, and it's usually the same side that has movement-related changes. So it's the contralateral side of the lesion, so contralesional side. 
Hemianesthesia is the loss of the ability to feel touch, temperature, and loss of proprioception, so being aware of where their limb is located in space, and it leads to safety concerns. It also impacts occupational performance on a variety of levels. So you do want to check the status of the somatosensory system. You can check for their ability to perceive hot, cold, uh, sharp, dull. Any of these assessments are something that will be helpful for the occupational therapy practitioner. And on a note on that is that I've heard practitioners just interview, verbally interview, saying, do you have any changes in your sensory system or your ability to perceive touch? And nine times out of 10, the patient will say, no, everything seems fine. But they don't know what they don't know. That is not an insult to the patient. It's your job to, to find that out. And when they say, no, I have no issues, and you do a uh, you know, you check for proprioception. So you have, uh, you place the unaffected limb in one position. You ask them to mirror that, that same position in space on the other side without looking. And they, seven out of 10 and correct. Or if you do a sharp dull exam and 60% error um, in multiple dermatomes, you'll understand that an individual may not have the ability or insight to know what they've lost. And that's our job to to ensure that their, their sensory system is intact or what the status of that is and, and documenting that for the medical team. So keep that in mind when you're working with sensory perceptual functions. We also want to talk about emotional behavioral functions. Uh, so Many individuals after a brain injury, again, a cerebrovascular accident is a non-traumatic internal acquired brain injury. So it does fall under that ABI umbrella. Many times somebody will have a flat affect. What this means is a person does not display any emotional expression and body gesture. Uh, he or she may appear to have a stony expression little reaction to things around them. <laughs> Keep this in mind if you're somebody who craves validation. I am this person. I need affirmation. I need verbal validation for my thoughts and ideas and approaches. And being in this field, we rarely receive that from our patients because if you're looking for any change of acceptance in their facial expressions or voice, know that you probably are not going to get that and it is not personal. This is something that somebody can work on in speech therapy. And of course, an occupational therapy practitioner can work on this as well, though many of us have not developed our competence in this, this particular area. So this is secondary to our primary goals in occupational therapy. We usually will sit with the speech therapist to, to discuss how they're working on communication goals. And that's you know, that further alludes to the other effects of a CVA, which is Wernicke's aphasia or receptive aphasia, Broca's aphasia or expressive aphasia, and dysarthria, which is uh, motor problems related to weakness, spasticity, or incoordination of the muscles needed for speaking. Uh, so their speech sounds garbled, right? So 
consider that flat affect is part of the emotional or behavioral function. There's not really much in, by way of testing for this. You'll be able to understand that once you're in front of somebody who has a flat affect. And emotional ability. So emotional ability is the opposite of a flat affect. A person is unable to control any emotional expression. So the emotional and behavioral symptoms of a stroke are often undiagnosed. They're untreated and they're very frustrating for the individual and his or her family members. So keep keep that in mind as a conversational point. See that, know that, know that that could be a thing and bring it up so your patient has something to talk about with you or someone to talk about. It's so important for them to know that their, their medical provider understands these often hidden symptoms that nobody really addresses. Um... So emotional ability is, by way of an example, a person is unable to control any emotional expression. So it just kind of comes out. They have no inhibition. It's just uh, anger, right? Anger, maybe it's extreme sadness, and it's just uncontrolled. Moving on to mental and cognitive functions, when we're testing for that or when we're considering our objective uh, objective section for mental cognitive functions, some different mental cognitive functions that could be impaired in a CVA, uh, somebody might experience unilateral neglect, so they may appear to they may appear to ignore half of their body or not recognize half of their body in the space opposite to the side where the stroke occurred. So that's unilateral neglect where they are unable to recognize half of themselves. Cognitive-related, not visual perception. Anosognosia, they may deny or not notice that they are having problems at all. That is very common in acquired brain injury. Agnosia is the difficulty uh, recognizing the appropriate use of an object. So somebody may brush their hair with a toothbrush. Uh, So that's something that you can weed out during an ADL session with your patient. You can kind of formalize what is going on functionally with them. Apraxia is a cognitive symptom that affects a person's ability to complete a known sequence of movements. Individuals with apraxia will have intact strength, sensation, and movement ability, but they cannot complete the task. This is very much cognitive and executive function related. This is why we train, right? This is why we train in ADLs. This is this is when it's appropriate to bring someone through. This is when it's appropriate to use auditory cues, maybe a recording of how someone can sequence their steps, what to do, when, to remind them of how the sequence is supposed to go. Keep in mind that we always jump to we always jump to cue cards and step-by-step ADL cues, being able to see them like flashcards. But most of the time, or at least some of the time, your patient is going to have executive function. They're not going to be able to sequence seeing a two-dimensional picture. So that's oftentimes an undersight or an oversight, rather, uh, for our patients in this setting. It's not always the most appropriate approach. Make sure that you know different ways to get around apraxia. And one way is task-specific training, uh, task-oriented training, 
being able to reform those motor plans to help our patients improve occupational performance in this area. So how can we look at just a brief, a, a brief fly on the wall or how can we get a good understanding of where they're at in their executive function? Well, first we can actually see them perform the task. So how are they getting dressed, going into their room and doing an ADL session with them? That is most appropriate in an inpatient or SNF setting. But what if you're an outpatient? You're not going to you're not going to be able to do that. That would be inappropriate, irrelevant, and most times not accepted by the patient. So how can we break it down and still understand if this person has executive dysfunction? We can give them a like a five-part sequence to do uh, to look at motor praxis, and we can also do uh, an MMSE or mini mental slums trail making controlled oral word association test. All of these things will help us understand and give us a full picture of what type of executive dysfunction is being experienced. People have different feelings on this, but the research is the research, and and research does say that you do need to have a formalized cognitive assessment, which is in the scope of practice of the occupational therapy practitioner. Now that you have acquired two to three objective measures using the assessments that are available to you, now you want to write up your assessment section. So what is your assessment section going to look like? In the assessment section, you are going to want to use your clinical insight. So what do you know about this diagnosis? What do you know about the current research of this diagnosis and therapeutic potential um, gleaned from your occupational profile or your occupational interview? You want to interpret this. So you combine the subjective information you collected and the outcomes of the assessment you conducted. You must include why restorative services are warranted and what the occupational therapy plan of care will address. I want to note something here. You do not have the luxury of being vague in your report. Everything you do matters. I don't care where you are in the in the world, <laughs> in the field of occupational therapy. If we want to get ahead, we have got to start leading with our competence. We have got to be detailed. We have to take the time. We have to be better than we are, and we have to put the detail and the work in. I know you're rushed. I know it's hard, but you have to do what's necessary to improve the respect of the occupational therapy profession, and that's why our assessment section has got to be beefier. It's got to be more knowledgeable than our counterparts. So include the necessity for caregiver training and support throughout the progression of this illness. Um, Include the necessity of occupational therapy services in all of the necessary domains, person, occupation, and environment. What will your role be and why is OT specifically necessary and warranted during this process for however long you, you believe it be necessary? In your assessment, explain to the reader why OT services should be reimbursed instead of another profession, like a non-skilled worker or self-help resources from online. If you are not specifying why you should be used, you will sound like an activity leader. I, I say this with love. I say this with full intention of spurring you to be better. 
if you do not use medical language, you will sound like an unskilled person trying to come across or get paid as a medical profession. This is why we're losing reimbursement at the federal level. We have got to lead with knowledge. Please take time to explain why scientifically you need to be used instead of having them just Google search online, follow some YouTube videos, and or go to an activity session. And then finally, some other things that you can include in this section. You can include the type of stroke or part of the brain impacted, expected, expected symptoms to be further addressed in future sessions, therapeutic potential and rationale of your patient, listing potential barriers to success, and then opposite to that, listing social and environmental supports for patient success, and then initial research-supported interpretation of your findings. So what do you bring to the table as a profession? which I already stated. Lastly, your plan. How are you going to create the plan? This is the same for all diagnoses. You want to think about how long your plan of care should be, what the frequency and level of intensity your, your plan of care should be, and then based on all the data you collected, your subjective and, uh, and objective, and your clinical interpretation, so your assessment, combining the first three parts of that SOAP, so the SOA, and putting it into the plan. That's that's the beauty of the SOAP continuum, right? What will your continuum look like? Remember, for every goal you have, you have a different continuum. You choose your assessment, you write your goal based on your assessment, and then you create checkpoints or mile markers. So your goal is your long-term, your checkpoints are your short-term. How are you going to guide this person to success? Short-term goals are more for your patient than they are for you. You know where you're going. The short-term goals and the mile markers keep everybody on the same page. People need goals. They need goals. It's been proven. You need goals. Everybody needs to be on the same page, not only for the sake of motivation, but also things will happen. You will backslide. You will have barriers to success, and we need to make sure that we're staying on the same page. So those are the general approach approaches to evaluation and progress periods. As we go further into treatment ideas that you can find throughout the, the bot portal and throughout your written materials, you can discern what type of treatment approaches you can use based on the deficits that are being presented.